We are going to be in Exodus chapter 11. And one of my favorite parts about this sermon series where we have been uh, talking about the greatest accomplishment of all time, the, the greatest of the greatest man of all time, is uh, if any of you enjoy hiking in the mountains, one of my favorite parts about hiking in the mountains is as you are ascending a certain mountain and you perhaps are going for miles in, in a number of directions, you get to see the same mountain or so the same set of mountains from a number of different perspectives, a number of different vista points that you're able to see that that same mountain or that same vista that looks over into the city, but you're able to see it with, with different eyes. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with the cross of Jesus Christ over the course of this series. We're taking the same event, the, re the crucifixion of Jesus, but we're looking at it through the lens of various different lenses to see the beautiful perspective that the whole Bible gives of the greatest event of all time. Today, uh, we're going to see we're going to see something with an absolute, that is absolutely central to the work that was accomplished on the cross. We, we teased this concept last week in talking about blood. I think this was the first time last week, I think it was probably the first time I've ever entitled an entire message just blood. <laughs> like, did we go to Sierra Vampire Church or what, what in the world is going on here? Uh, but we teased this concept last week. Sunday, and we'll explain it more fully today, and it is the concept of this, the concept of substitution, of Jesus dying in our place, being our substitute. Today, we're going to see very simply that the cross provides the, the only substitute for sin so that we might be saved from God's wrath. We're going to see this in two particular, with two particular events, one in the Old Testament in the Passover, and one in the New Testament on the cross. So with that, let's pray and commit this time to God. Heavenly Father, we give you all of the honor and the glory and the praise for the work that you have accomplished for us on our behalf as our substitute on the cross. God, we pray that as we journey through your scriptures here this morning, that you would be glorified and that we would see with crystal clarity the central concept that you have provided for us, a substitute. Help us, O oh God, to understand who you are and what you're doing and to allow for your work to be accomplished in us here because of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, when I say the word substitute, some of you call to mind and bring to mind either the best days in elementary school, sweet, my horrible teacher is gone for the day, and we have a sub, or brings to mind the worst days in elementary school. I love my teacher, she's sick, and now I have to deal with this one. Or perhaps when you hear the word substitute, you think of uh, a sugar substitute. I want to experience the sweetness of sugar, but I don't want the calories. So I'm going to substitute a sugar sweetener like Splenda or Equal in the place of sugar. The concept of substitution in its very essence is one thing standing in the place for another thing. And we'll see this throughout the entire scriptures that God provides a substitute. 
something standing in the place of another. We see this we see this clearly in the story that we mentioned last week as Abraham was bringing his only son Isaac up the mountain to offer his only son as a sacrifice and he is operating in faith and he's about to kill his only son and God intervenes and says, Abraham, wait, you don't need to follow through with this. I have provided a substitute and a ram is caught in the thicket and it was provided Instead of Abraham's only son, Isaac, God provided a substitute. But that's not the only time in which God provides a substitute for his people. In Exodus chapter 11, as we know from the story from our great, the greatest Bible teacher that we probably all heard and heard being spoke of as, as a child, our, the greatest Bible teacher, Charlton Heston, who taught us uh, what happened in the Exodus. Uh, so we, we know that God called Moses on a mountain to, and said to, to go to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. He responds, he, he, he responds saying that he's not going to allow for uh, the, the Israelites, God's people, to be freed, and God just sends wave after wave of plague after plague, nine consecutive plagues, and Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go. And he saves the most climactic plague for the tenth plague, and this is what God says in chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits, on his who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against, against, against any of the people of Israel." either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all of the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land. Moses and Aaron did all of the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. God is calling his shot here. God is saying, I am going to bring judgment upon Egypt. I am going to hold them accountable for their sin. I am going to bring my wrath upon this land. But I'm going to make a distinction between my people and the people who are not trusting me by faith. And it's going to go out and the firstborn of all of Egypt, from the highest in society to the very lowest, to even all of the animals, the firstborn will die. God is telling the, the Egyptians exactly what is going to happen. But God warns his people in chapter 12. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all of the congregation that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take 
a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to which each one, to what each can eat, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You can take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, and in front of the whole congregation of Israel, you shall, they shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, do on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat, of, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its leg, its and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat of it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn of Egypt in the land, both man and beast. And on all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is telling the Egyptians, or telling his people very, very clearly that they are to respond in faith to his coming judgment upon the land of Egypt by sacrificing a lamb, substituting a lamb, and putting the lamb's blood over the doorposts of their house. And at twilight, as they feast on the, on the lamb and as the blood is smeared over the doorpost, as the destroyer comes of God's wrath in the city, God will spare his people through the blood of the lamb. And this is what we see happens in the Exodus. God provided a substitute and the lamb died instead of God's people. Don't you wish we could have a substitute for like the hardest of life's experience? I wish I could have like a substitute bill payer. That'd be nice. Like as soon as the bills come in, you call sub, bring them in, please pay a bill for me. Wouldn't it be nice for some of us to have a substitute exerciser? I don't actually want to wake up. I don't actually want to do the work. I call in my sub to exercise on my behalf. Or maybe some of our families here would just really appreciate a substitute parental discipliner. Your kid is acting up. Sub, come in. Deal with them. I can't handle it right now. In the midst of the most overwhelming 
of all of experiences that any human will ever experience, death. God comes to the Israelites and provides a substitute. The lamb dies instead of the firstborn. Don't we wish that this were true for us? That God would send somebody to die in our place, to experience what we deserve. The co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, once said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven, they, they don't want to die to get there. And yet, death, death is the destination that we all share. When the wrath of God is fully poured out, and we all experience a measure of it just in experiencing death in our own lives, we all have loved ones that have passed away, and that deep nagging insecurity inside of your soul that says, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be, points us forward to a final judgment that is coming. And when the wrath of God is fully poured out upon the world, as the plague, the tenth plague in Egypt, was a foretaste of, we better pray that we have the blood of the Lamb over our doorposts of our life. Amen? We better pray that God provides for us a substitute. And this is what makes the ministry of Jesus so absolutely remarkable. He arrived on the scene in John chapter 1, verse 39. John chapter 1, verse 29. And uh, John the Baptist proclaims just something remarkable about him. He, he says, what's so remarkable about it is just the simplicity of the statement, but yet the depth of the meaning of the statement. John the Baptist says this, he, he sees Jesus coming on the scene, he looks to Jesus and he says, behold, look at that man, behold, the Lamb of God. This would have been pregnant with all sorts of meaning to a first century Jew. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we just walked through what that would mean to a first century Jew in the Passover. The Lamb died instead of the people. In the very identity of the people of God in Israel, they knew that God provided a substitute Lamb to die in their place during the Exodus Passover so that they might be spared from His wrath. But that's not the only time in which a Lamb is mentioned in the, in the Old Testament. Isaiah 5, chapter 53 speaks of the suffering servant, the, the Messiah figure that would come as a lamb that would be led to the slaughter, who would be wounded for our transgressions. There was also every day in the morning and every night in the evening a lamb that was offered daily in the temple that would be offered as a sacrifice every single day in the, in the altar, on the altar in the temple. Jeremiah the prophet says in chapter 11, verse 19 of the book, that according to his name, that he as a prophet was like a gentle lamb amidst persecutors. There was the scapegoat that we talked about last week on the, the, on the Day of Atonement that we, heard, that we heard about last week that takes away the sin of the nation once a year as he is removed from the camp. 
There was the first century Jewish apocalyptic literature that, that talked about this apocalyptic lamb, ram type figure that would come and conquer for the nation of Israel, who would triumph. And there was also the imagery of the, the lamb that God would provide as a substitute instead of the only son, Isaac. So when Jesus is approaching John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this imagery is coming forward in the minds of the people who are hearing John the Baptist preach. It would have been pregnant with all of this sort of meaning. Just in that one sentence, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, John is saying, Look, the promised suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Here he comes. Behold, the Messiah of, pro of prophetic literature who will be the apocalyptic lamb ram who will come and conquer. Behold, the man who is coming as the lamb of God who will be more reliable than the morning and the evening than the daily sacrifices that are offered in the temple. Behold, look at this man who will take all of the sin on himself as the true scapegoat for the day of atonement and not just remove the sin of Israel once a day for once a year, remove the sin of Israel from the nation of Israel, but he will remove the sin of the whole world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In one particular sentence in the New Testament, the John the Baptist ushers in an entire messianic age. And Jesus knows this. Jesus understands this. And this is what makes Jesus so beautiful and pure and amazing because he lives a completely unblemished life. He's a young man in his 30s. And he's a rising star in, in Israel. He enters into Jerusalem he enters into Jerusalem the week before he's crucified and he is about to be crowned as their king. Remember, they sing, Hosanna in the highest. Our Messiah has come. He could have, at that moment, been a political ringleader and he could have said, all right, Israel, we're going to conquer Rome. He would have been tempted with every worldly pleasure that he could have possibly enjoyed because he had the crowds with him at that point. But yet, that particular week, as he ascends the Mount of Olives to pray to his father, what does he do? He prays, Father, if there's any other way, that you could take this cup from me. And what does that cup mean? It's the Passover week, the cup that resembles the blood of the Lamb. He knows within his psyche, because he's studied the Bible, he knows the scripture, he knows everything that God has said, and he's read through all of the passages about the daily sacrifices. He's seen them in the temple. He's heard Isaiah chapter 53. He's heard all of that. And at, the, at that very moment, as he is praying to the Father, he knows all of those passages. Those passages are about me. And the anguish within his soul, he begins praying so earnestly that he begins sweating blood. 
Now, this isn't just because he's some spiritual all-star. He knows he is sweating blood because he is going to do the one act that no man has ever done nor will ever do again. He is going to atone for the sins of the entire world. And if you don't have anguish with that, you don't understand what Jesus was, was doing. And as he ascends the Mount of Olives, he knows what is coming. He gets arrested and he is led to the slaughter on the cross. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on this experience of the cross in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he says this, While we were still weak, in other words, when we were still filled with temptation of all different kinds from all different places, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. You know, maybe for someone that you love, that you're in relationship with, that you're right standing with, yeah, maybe you might give your life because you love that person, and they're good to you, and you're good to them. Maybe that might happen. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, while we were still his rebels, while we were still going against him, not desiring him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? Saved by him from the wrath of God. As Jesus is praying on the mountain before he's going to the cross and it comes crashing into his soul, I am the Lamb of God. I am the sacrifice. He knows the cost of atonement. He knows the mission that God has sent him to accomplish. And he knows there is no way for me to, as an unblemished man, for me to be with my father and also be with them. So, he decides in his mind, he, he, he probably thinks this through, I can go back and be with my father right now. I'm unblemished. I have no sin. I'm in full communion with him. I could go back to him. God could send an angel. I can just ascend to heaven right now. I'm unblemished. I could be in his full presence. I could be the only human in his presence. I could do that. But then they die in their sin then they won't be with me and my Father in my glory. The only way for them to be with me is they need a substitute. They need someone to go on their behalf, in their place, to die for their sin. So Father, take this cup from me if you want, but I know that there's no other way that they can be with you and me in heaven unless they have a lamb over, their, over the door of their life unless they have a sacrifice. So Jesus resolves in the garden, 
I will be the substitute. I will be the lamb. I will be the one who offers pure, unblemished blood over the life of all of my people so that they might be in a right relationship with God, not because of their own works, but because of my blood, because of my work for them. Brothers and sisters, the the wrath of God is coming. Everyone in this room will experience death at some point. The question isn't whether we will die or not. The question isn't whether we will experience the wrath of God in the sense of dying. The question is whether we have the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost of our life. The question is whether we have a substitute or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we worship you as the Lamb who was slain. We praise you, we worship you, and ask you, God, the Father, that you would illuminate our hearts by your Spirit to see the beauty of your cross and to worship the Lamb who has died in our place for our sin. Heavenly Father, I pray if there are any here who do not have you as their substitute, that you would open up the floodgates of your heart and your love into their life. In Jesus' name, amen.